A number of years after Jesus ascended into heaven, one of his disciples, the Apostle John, was in prison on the island of Patmos. And while he was in that prison, he had a vision. It was a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the risen Jesus. And, and in this vision, Jesus unveiled to him much of what's going to occur into the future. And we're pretty lucky because um, this revelation was written down. Well, it's got, luck's got nothing to do with it. Uh, God told him to write it down. Um, and so we now have what's known as the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the very last book in our Bibles. And it happens to be the book of the Bible that we began studying a few weeks ago. And we'll be in it for a number of months yet. Now we're up to chapter 2 today. And chapters 2 and 3 of this revelation are what's known as the letters to the seven churches. And we're just beginning on chapter 2 today, as I said. Jesus dictated to John seven letters to seven churches who were in what was then known as Asia. We, we know it as Turkey. That's the map that's up on the screen there. And each church would get to read all seven letters. Only one letter was written specifically to each church, but, but they, like us, were able to read everybody else's mail. And you can learn a lot when you read someone else's mail, hey? And, and that's good for us. And as I've studied these seven letters, I cannot think of any church that I know of that is not very much like at least one of these churches. I cannot come up with an example of a church who could read these letters and go, well, that's got nothing to say to me. And so what we find is these seven churches are sort of like prototypes of all of the churches that would exist throughout history. And as such, the letters from Jesus are very relevant for us today. So, over the next seven weeks as we read these letters, I want us to be asking the question, is this letter a, church, a letter for us as a church? Um, it, it's going to be a little bit like waiting for the mailman to come each week. We know that Jesus has posted us a letter, we just don't know which week it's going to arrive. And so we're going to be waiting and hearing a letter, and, and we might find that more than one of these letters fit us. But we're also going to have a lot to learn from all of the other letters today. So is today a letter for Bush disciples? Or maybe it might be a letter for those who are listening to this on, on the video. Or maybe it might be a letter for a church of somebody who's listening to it on their iPod. Righto. So let's pray and then we'll read today's letter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we live in an age where it's suddenly become very uncommon to receive a letter from anyone anymore. And yet when we do, it can, can often be something which is very significant for us. But how privileged we are today to be receiving a letter from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Lord, help us to recognise if this is a letter from you to our specific church today. And Lord, I ask that we would not only learn from this correspondence from yourself to us, but that by your grace, we would apply what we learn from these letters to our lives and in our church. Lord, open our eyes so that we would be able to see what your eyes of fire see. Open our ears so that we would hear the truth about ourselves and about the way we behave, no matter how hard that is for us to accept. And Lord, by your mercy, enable us to be overcomers, 
that we would go on in what is good and that we would repent of what is evil so that we would become the church that you are calling us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Righto, so Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves to be apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay. The seven letters to the seven churches all have some remarkable similarities to each other, and we'll probably notice this as we work our way through them. Um, But today I want to do things a little bit back to front, and I just want to look at the climax of each of these letters first. The climax to pretty much all of these seven letters is the promise of inheriting eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, that's a pretty good promise, isn't it? Is anybody looking forward to that? I know I am. Good. There's four of us looking forward to eternity with Christ. That's great. Um, Hopefully, by the end of the series, we might have more of us. Um, But for some of the churches, this promise of eternity with Jesus Christ is at risk because of the way in which the church is behaving. But always, always, the promise is there before them that their eternal life can be restored, their eternal life can be assured. And this promise of eternal life is key for understanding the reason why these seven letters have been written. Each of these letters deal generally with the issue of witnessing for Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture which is not Christian. Um, does anybody, can anybody think of a culture that is not Christian? The one, that, the one that we're in perhaps? Yeah, so it's pretty relevant for us here today because it's about witnessing for Christ in the midst of a culture which is not Christian. And the churches with problems are then exhorted to strengthen their witness and there's a couple of churches that he doesn't list any problems about them and they're encouraged to continue on to persevere in the faithful witness that they've been maintaining. Now, as we study these seven letters, some of us may notice that they have a very similar structure to each other. Uh, Some of them have a couple of elements that may be missing, but in general, they're all quite similar. And this is the structure. There is a command to write to an angel of the church. Christ then describes himself. He then congratulates that church for its good works, unless, of course, there's nothing good to say about that church. 
Now, what a terrible indictment it is on a church if when Jesus Christ looks at a church and looks and looks and starts scratching his head and he just can't come up with anything good to say about it. Um, I hope that we're not one of those churches. Um, but we will see that example in, in, this, in these letters when we get to them. Um, an accusation is then levelled at the church because of some sin. And then number five, there's a warning to change their ways with either notions of judgment or encouragement. Number six, the reader is asked to decide for themselves whether what is being said is true or not. Right? So basically, when Jesus says something like, he who has an ear, let him hear, what Jesus is saying is, okay, you've heard this, do you accept it? Or, or are you just going to live in denial, even though I've just told you this about yourself? And then seventh, there's a promise to those who conquer the problem. So let's see how today's letter fits into this. Today's letter is the letter to the church in Ephesus. So there is a command to write to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And then Jesus describes himself. And, and here Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now that would mean absolutely nothing to us excepting for what we talked about last week because it explained that last week. Last week we were told that, okay, I shared with you, the book of Revelation uses a lot of images to give us the, the message and we were told last week that the seven stars in Jesus' hand represent the angels who are responsible for each of the churches. And the lampstands represent the churches. Right? So this imagery reminds us that the Christian church is not simply a physical human institution. There is a spiritual dimension to the church and it's a very important part of what it means to be church. The church is a lampstand. We are there, but we don't have any light of our own. Jesus Christ is the source of its light. He holds the stars in his hand, the stars of each of the churches. And Jesus Christ walks among the lampstands. That means that Jesus is very well and truly aware of everything that goes on in a church. And because he is well aware of what's going on, he knows the good and he knows the bad. Which brings us to the third step of the letter. He congratulates the church for its good works, if there are any. And yes, the church in Ephesus gets, gets a tick here that they do have some good works. The church in Ephesus are congratulated. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment to just talk briefly about the relationship between faith and good works. Yeah, because we've probably had it drummed into us, you're not saved by good works. You see, the understanding that most of society have about Christianity is wrong. The popular belief, if you ask Joe Blow off the street, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you become a Christian? Most of them would probably tell you, oh, say, oh it's going to church and doing good things. Um, but that's quite wrong. We are not saved by being good people. We are not saved by you know, helping little old ladies across the road. We don't get our sins washed away by selling everything we have and giving it to the poor. And we don't earn our way to heaven by reading three chapters of the Bible a day and singing 36 hymns before breakfast. That's not how we get saved. 
because we're saved by faith. We're not saved by works that we do, we're saved by faith. Now, do we all understand this? I'm hoping to see some nodding heads because we've talked about this often enough. Because neither you nor I could ever be good enough to make ourselves right with God. It's, it's completely outside of our reach. And that's the reason Jesus came. If I, could, if I could save myself by being good, Jesus wouldn't have need to die on the cross. And it's because I was totally incapable of being good enough, that's why Jesus came. Jesus died to take our punishment upon himself Our very rejection of God, that rejection itself, is what sin is. And Jesus saves us from sin as long as we believe in him, repent. That means turn from our sin and trust in him and follow him as Lord. Right, so we're not saved by the good things that we do. We are saved by faith. But... Unfortunately, some churches get so fixated on this knowledge that we're saved by faith that they will tear down anyone who would suggest that we should also be doing good deeds. And they would say, oh, that's just legalism. You're just living by law. You know, we need to live by grace. You don't have to do good deeds. And about this time last year, we were studying the book of James. And the book of James is addressing that very problem. And and in it, he said, Faith without works is dead. You see, the Christian faith isn't only about believing. Because if you believe in Jesus, if you truly believe in Jesus and are truly following him, if that faith is real, your faith will be a very active faith. It's not a passive faith. It's not something we just have done to us. Christianity is something that we live and breathe and do. And so it begins with faith, but our faith is expressed in our works, right? Because Jesus saves us and because by faith we're believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus, we then do good things for God and in his name. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, when he looks at our church, he wants to know What are your deeds? What do you do? How are you living out what you believe? And of course, we don't have to answer that because he can see very well for himself and he knows the answer to that. He can look into our hearts and he knows what our faith is like. And he can look at our church, he can look at us individually and see what we do, how we behave. And this has eternal ramifications. Right, let's come back now to the church at Ephesus. What does Jesus congratulate this church for doing? He said to them, I know your works. I know your toil. Another word for that could be labour, right? It's hard work. It's difficult work. It's painful work. It's hard labour. 
to work for the Lord in the service of his kingdom. Don't you ever think for a moment that it's an easy ride. Yeah, sometimes we hear the words of Jesus where he says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And from that, we start to conjure up the picture in our minds that the Christian life is a life of restful inactivity. It is not. Jesus relieves us from the burden of carrying sin. That's the rest he gives us, right? We're struggling under this burden of sin and it just impacts everything we do and it weighs us down. And he relieves us of that burden. And once we're relieved of that burden, then we have all of the energy that we could have to work hard for the Lord and for his kingdom. And so he congratulates those who toil, He congratulates those who work hard. He congratulates those who labour in the service of the kingdom. And um, I'm not one for for giving votes of thanks or anything much in meetings or in churches and stuff, but isn't it good to have those who work hard? Isn't it good to have those who who come an hour earlier or a couple of hours earlier to church so that they can do Sunday school? Isn't it good to have those who will teach RE in our schools? Isn't it good to have those who will go and visit the sick? Isn't it good to have those who will go and, and meet with people who they know don't know Jesus and introduce him to them? Isn't it good to have those who run our youth groups? Isn't it good to have those who, who spend time putting music together and stuff so we can have a worship service together? Isn't it good to have those who spend their days praying. It's good to have those who labour for the Lord in the service of his kingdom. And he also commended them for their patient endurance. It's not easy being a Christian in a world that's opposed to Jesus, but we do it and we patiently wait for his return, bearing whatever the world might throw at us. But then Jesus commends this church for something that our society wouldn't generally think was commendable. In fact, it's something that our society would probably um, get up them for doing it instead of congratulating them. Intolerance. Yep, you heard it right. Jesus commended them for their intolerance. What were they intolerant of? When somebody would try to introduce a teaching that was not the true gospel into their church, they would not tolerate it. They wouldn't put up with it. They wouldn't put up with false teaching. Anyone who claimed to have an authority to teach, well, they tested them. You know, well, what do you believe? What are you going to be teaching us in this church? And when they found that what they were teaching was false, they wouldn't have it. Now, you know, in the early days, Paul had written his own letter to this church in Ephesus. And in in the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he told them to watch out for false teachers. Um, And we can actually find this also in the books of Acts and Timothy. And the Ephesian church took this command very seriously. They tested what they were being taught. And when they found that it wasn't the truth, they rejected it. Some churches today, though, they pride themselves on their tolerance. They're proud of the fact that, oh, we accept all sorts of teachings here. 
you, you don't have to stick to what we believe um, and, and you can just share and we just sort of make a big milkshake of, of what we as a church believe. But not the church in Ephesus. And Jesus c- congratulated them that they didn't do that. He congratulated them that they just stuck to the truth. Okay, so what we have here is a description of a hard-working church who is passionate for the truth. They're always on the lookout for wrong teaching and guarding against the lies of the devil. And it's a church that patiently endures in the faith. And they keep on following the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what the world throws at them. It almost sounds like the perfect church, isn't it? Right? It's got so much going for it. But what's, what do you think's missing? Did anyone pick it up in the, in the reading? What's missing? Love. Love. Hard work and correct doctrine alone is not enough for a church. Not if it becomes a church without love. Jesus said, I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. Did they abandon their love for Jesus? Did they abandon the love that they had for each other? Did they abandon the love that they have for their neighbour? Or did they just lose the joy of that first love? You know, that the passion that you have when you first become a Christian? It's exciting to see new Christians, isn't it? When there's a brand new Christian, they just love the Lord so much and they're just so excited and they, and they want to tell the world about what Jesus has done for them. They're always inviting people to come to church and to come to Bible study. And they, they're just so excited with every new little nugget that they mine out of the Bible. And it's, it's exciting. But it's really sad when over time one starts losing that excitement. Now, I don't know which which one of these it is. Maybe it's all of them. So let's not make it specific. Jesus didn't make it specific. He simply said, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Right? They used to love, but they've abandoned it. it. It's completely gone. Now, I suspect he's probably talking about losing their passion for Jesus. Um, I suspect he's probably talking about they're so much wanting to keep everything correct that they've abandoned their passion for Jesus. They're not inviting new people along like they might muck up our finely tuned machine. You may be starting to get a little bit of a picture of what sort of a church he's talking about. There is a trap, you see. When a church strives for truth, and strives to just be doing things properly and by the book, the trap is that that church can become very legalistic. Some churches are so stringent on their rules and their regulations so that they can get their doctrine right and keep it right, and nobody can accuse them of being on the wrong track, but they can be so fixated on this that they forget about something even more important, Love. 
Sometimes the legalities of what's right and wrong leads to judgmental attitudes where people are victimised and hurt and rejected. And it is very sad when we would reject somebody who Christ would run to greet with open arms. I find it very interesting that when Paul wrote to this very church in Ephesus, he talked about the job of preachers and pastors and teachers and about how their job is to build the church up to maturity so that we'll know Christ, right? Teaching them all of the things about Jesus so they'll understand and know it really well and that way they won't get um, pulled off track by false prophets and false teachers. And then he said... Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Truth and love should never be separated. They should always be, go together. In fact, they cannot be separated. They go together hand in hand because the truth of the matter is we are commanded to love. And I believe this is something that we here at Bush Disciples need to be very aware of. Um, we're only a recent church plant. We've not long begun. And I myself left a church because I was convicted that that denomination had fallen for a lie, that the world had gotten into the church and, and the teaching of the denomination had been clouded so that it put other things above God's word. And I believe the Lord said it's time to leave. Now that's all very good and nice for us to stand for truth and to stand against lies. And it's right for us to do so. But let's always do it filled with love. Let's always speak the truth in love. And let's never become one of those legalistic churches that that just hold on to the truth and forget about love altogether. Do you remember what Jesus said about his disciples? Did he say, they will know that you are my disciples by your correct doctrine? Is that what Jesus said? No. What did he say? They will know that you are my disciples by the way you love each other. But let's not limit the type of love. As Christians, we should love one another, we should love our neighbour, and we should love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart and soul and mind and all of our strength. Step five. There's a warning to change their ways with either notions of judgment or encouragement. And in verse five, we read this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Right? They once used to love. Remember from where you've fallen. They can love again. And then he says, repent. And this is a very important word. And we're going to hear this word over and over and over again as we work our way through this book of Revelation. Repent means to change the way we're going. It means to change the way we're doing things. It, it just means to change our ways. Backpedal. In this case, he's saying you used to love, you're not loving anymore, repent. Go back to what you used to do. Love again. Do the works that you did at first. And they are warned that if they don't change their ways, 
if they don't begin to love again, they will be judged. And Jesus says, if you don't change, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. Ooh, he's going to shift the furniture if we don't repent. But do you get the significance of what he's saying here? He's not shifting furniture. Do you understand what this image means? If this church in Ephesus do not repent, to put it bluntly, it means as far as Jesus Christ is concerned, if you don't love, you're not his church. Do you understand the ramifications of this? A church is not an institution. And that's why I had the kids' story that we had today. A church is not an institution. A church is not a building. A church is the people of God. And if the people who claim to be the people of God don't love... They're not really God's people. When you, when you start getting, beyond, getting down to what these images mean, that's cutting. That's cutting. And a lot of people won't accept it. Step six. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? Jesus is saying, listen up, pay attention to this. Take notice of what I'm saying. Are you going to accept that this is true? I've just told you this. Are you going to accept that it's true or are you going to live in denial? And finally, step seven. There's a promise to those who conquer the problem. What's the promise? I love the promises of Jesus. And all of the promises that we find in Revelation are fantastic. We got told right at the start that when we read this book, we're going to be blessed. Well, here's a blessing here. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right? This is a picture of eternity. The promise is, if that church in Ephesus was to repent, and if they were to begin to love again like they once used to love, Jesus will grant them eternal life. He will welcome them into the paradise of God. And there are many people in the world today, even people who study the Bible, and they will not accept that that is what Jesus is saying here. What's he saying? He's saying, if you stop loving, you are no longer my church and you're no longer saved. You're no longer going to be entering into paradise. But if you repent of this and begin to love again, if you begin to love like you once used to love, you'll be in my paradise with me. Now, if you're someone who believes in the human phrase of once saved always saved you're going to have a lot of trouble with this letter in revelation uh, i just want to reiterate though if you've ever heard that phrase once saved always saved that basically means provided you've said the sinner's prayer you're saved forever you can't lose your salvation you're going to have a lot of time struggling with revelation 
and you won't be able to accept what Jesus has said here in this letter. But that is what he says. And that is so challenging. Truth and hard work alone are not enough. Because unless we love, we're not the church of Jesus Christ. Now I want to finish off by saying one final thing. True love, to love like Jesus loves, does not mean that truth gets, truth gets turfed out and forgotten at the expense of love. Towards the end of, end of the letter, Jesus reiterated to them how much he admired their intolerance of false teaching. He'd just given them this horrible dressing down. I've got this against you, you know, you don't love. But then he says this. He says, yet this you have, right? You've got this going for you. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who are these people, the Nicolaitans? Well, I understand that the Nicolaitans used to teach that, hey, it's okay to have a little bit of idol worship on the side. That's what your society's doing. We can sort of get alongside them a little bit. We can, you can still be a Christian, but have a little bit of mixing up with the idols. That's okay, because that's what society's doing. And Jesus is saying, I hate that. And it's really good that you hate it too. The point... I think he's driving at home that truth and love must go together. Truth without love is not truth at all. And love without truth is not love at all.